This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Since day one, Genda Reed Knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest reed knives on the market, and Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a good reed knife, now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at gendaindustries.com. That's J-E-N-D-E-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Reed Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Jackie, episode 20. Are you excited? I can't believe we're up to 20 already. I feel really proud of us, actually. (laughs) It feels like, oh my gosh, we're up to 20, and then it also feels like we've been doing this a long time, and we've kind of (laughs) got things down to a regular rhythm and that type of thing, so... I'm a lot less nervous now on the microphone. That could be good or bad. I (laughs) guess... Do you remember like the first couple of episodes when we would like record our intros and then we'd be like, hi, I'm Glee. Wait, let me start again. Let me start again. Hi. No, I got to do it again. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Let me do it over. (laughs) I'm glad we're not doing that so much anymore. I think it still happens sometimes. but Yes, I'm glad we've moved beyond. It takes three hours to record 10 minutes. Definitely. <laughs> so there are sometimes I listen back and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're too comfortable. What a <laughs> bunch of chuckleheads. <laughs> uh, so we have um, our dish this time. It's a little bit scary for me because this was my suggestion, by the way. I suggested that Jackie and I interview each other, like for our dish, and then. <laughs> But I'm the one being interviewed first. So now I'm regretting my choice. And we said we're not going to tell each other the questions ahead of time. And, yeah. So my first question for you is if you're not a fabulous oboist extraordinaire, what do you think you would do as a career? I think that I would be working in some big-time publishing house as like a top editor and I would just like have my red pen and be like slash take this out slash change this 
and I would have a really fancy apartment and a fancy car. That's what I would be doing. See, I thought you would say, like, professional cheese tester. (laughs) Because the listeners do not know, but you love cheese. I love cheese more than I love most other things. (laughs) Except for my wife and my cat. Whenever our trio gets together, it's more often Corey and Galit visit me because I'm in the middle between Wisconsin and Mississippi. And we'll just, like, stay at my house, and they'll bring their own food, and we'll use our kitchen or whatever so we're not eating out all the time. And you guys will go grocery shopping together, and you'll buy these cheeses. The Baby Bell cheese. There you go. Not too long into the trip, and Corey will be like, what happened to the cheese? And Galit will be like, I ate it. (laughs) Yeah, I... I have a cheese problem. I'm not scared to admit it. <laughs> the poor listeners at home are probably like, okay. Oh, she knows cheese. Skip, 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 skip ahead, skip, skip. <laughs> Moving on. My uh, second question, and maybe we already covered this, I don't know. Um, what is something that the listeners would be surprised to learn about you? Let's make it not cheese related. <laughs> Um, so what comes to mind is that I am super allergic to fire ants. One of them almost killed me when I was a student in Tallahassee. Jackie, I've told you about this, but I, I'm sure the listeners, obviously the listeners don't know. But, like, I got I got stung by a fire ant when I was a doctoral student. And, I, you know, I was like, whatever, it's really itchy. But it was, like, on my foot. I was like, whatever, I have to go to school. I have to teach a lesson. So I, like, drove over to school. It was, like, 10-minute drive. And then I walk in the building, and it's, like, really itchy. And I felt really hot. And I was like, oh, it's just really hot out. It's Florida. And then um, I started seeing hives, like, on my arms. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And I had just seen my friend Katie Woolsey. Shout out, Katie Woolsey. Um like she was leaving the building as I was entering. And so I called her. It was like 15 minutes after I got stung. And I was like, Hey, um, I'm probably overreacting, but, um, do you think you could take me to the hospital? I think I'm having an overreaction or yeah, I said, no, I think I said, I, I think I'm overreacting, but, but I, I think I'm having a reaction to a bite. And she was like, I am not there anymore. You need to call 911 and get in an ambulance right now. And I was like, I'm sure it's nothing. Meantime, like my heart is racing and there are hives all over my body and my ears are blowing up and my lips are (laughs) blowing up. So I finally called 911 because she told me to. And the ambulance pulls up in front of the building And by then, my throat had closed, and my eyes had closed, and I looked like an alien. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen someone having an allergic reaction like that, but, like, you don't look like a human being anymore. (laughs) I actually haven't seen it as bad as I know yours was. I can't even really imagine it. You just don't look human. Like, they just, they pulled up. They sort of, like, leaned out the window, and they were like, hey, are we here for – yes, we're here for you. Okay. <laughs> ambulance. They immediately gave me two EpiPen shots and a Benadryl drip, and they were getting my information, and they were like, so, um, you know, just for our records, do you normally look like this? And I was like, no! <laughs> are you related to Mr. Potato Head? <laughs> They take me to the hospital. I'm immediately, like, emergencyed into the room with the doctor. 
And, you know, I'm like, I'm like having muscle spasms from the adrenaline shots. It's like when you're, yeah, you know how when you're nervous, you get a little shaky? Mm -hmm. That's adrenaline. So when you have a lot of adrenaline, like when you're having an allergic reaction and they shoot you full of two EpiPens, like your whole arms and legs are just spasming. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I'm like trying to sign the forms and my arms are spasming. And then um, I was like, I asked the doctor, I was like, um, so if I hadn't called the ambulance right when I did, do you think I could have died? He was like, oh, yeah, you 100% would have died. I was like, okay, great. So that's my story. And now I carry around an EpiPen <laughs> just in case because the fire ants are everywhere. Holy moly. Okay. It was terrible. Well, my last question is one that the listeners will know and love. I, it is my favorite question. I ask it every time um, mm. because it's just I get so excited hearing about people's favorite musical memories. Oh, this is such an easy answer because it just happened. Um, I just gave this recital that I've been talking about for months, the one where I did Jewish and Indian composers. Mm-hmm. And I prepared for this one differently in that I was doing deep work and deep practice, like in the um, probably – month or so leading up to it and I tell you this was the first time ever that I have felt comfortable and happy on stage and then after the recital and I got such positive feedback from the audience and my colleagues and the students who were there and it felt good you know that feeling where you know the audience is with you and they're engaged and interested in what you're doing Mm -hmm. like I had that and it was so cool and it was partially the repertoire partially my preparation and like I actually had some moments where I was having fun giving a solo recital which was the point of me trying to plan more solo recitals because it usually makes me super nervous so it was really successful and fun and I I'm so glad that I did it that's awesome yeah So for this episode's shout-outs, I am shouting out a audio series. It's not a podcast per se. It's just a short-term audio series, but you can get it at least on the iTunes, uh, the Apple Podcast app. And you can also get it at theatlantic.com. Um, so it's called What My Students Taught Me, and it is a multi-part audio series that explores the teacher-student relationship. Um, So there are, I believe, eight episodes, and they each have a different title. Um, The student that I couldn't stand, the student that got away, the student that broke my heart. And they're all um, stories of challenging teaching moments, um, moments that the teacher had to kind of struggle through or overcome or try to approach in a different way. The idea being that sometimes those are the scenarios that as educators we learn from the most. And it was just really cool. It was really inspiring. Um, A common thread through almost every episode, and they're little, they're um, 8 to 15 minutes is only how long every episode is. Um the common thread was really that because they 
interviewed both the teacher and the student in question whenever possible. So they got the student's perspective as well and what the student got from that teacher who continued to try to come at them from a different angle. And the common thread was always that the quote unquote trouble student comes is dealing with trouble themselves Mm -hmm. and that they benefited significantly from this teacher who essentially didn't give up on them. And that doesn't necessarily always mean the teacher was accommodating. You know what I mean? Um, In some cases, very much not so, but they continue to be engaged. And I just really recommend it to educators and aspiring educators. It just kind of gave me a shot in the arm in terms of what you do is very important and you are impacting the lives of the young people that you work with every day and every time that you come in contact with them. And that is a privilege and that is something to take um, seriously and thoughtfully. And so I just, I really loved it and was very inspired by this series. So I encourage everybody to check out what my students taught me on theatlantic.com or through your podcast app. That sounds completely amazing. It was really cool. I might cry listening to it. (laughs) There is one, the last episode, they save kind of the most tragic case for the last episode. But uh, yeah, it's still, um, you know, sometimes media that's really beneficial isn't always easy to consume, but it's important to consume. And that's how I'd kind of categorize this. That's great. Um, So my shout out is actually similar to yours. It is... um, the Program Notes podcast through the San Francisco Symphony. Um, this class that I'm teaching, writing about, writing about music, we are diving into how to write program notes. And as I was researching, I came upon this resource, and Chicago Symphony does the same thing. Um, but we ended up sticking with the San Francisco Symphony one, and we just picked a random one, which was Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition. And I learned so much. And I can't tell you how many times I've played pictures. But I learned so much just from the program notes, and it's in podcast form, and you can, they, like, play the piece in the background, so um, it's, like, you know, a lot more interesting than just listening to somebody talk to you, like we do to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was really great, and, you know, like, I I knew that Ms. Orksky had an alcohol problem, but I didn't realize that you know, the extent of his alcoholism and like the, the, the information that they give you on the podcast really talked about like who he worked with and what his life was like. And it goes into detail about the context for the piece. And it was really great. It was really great. It's beautifully narrated. And of course it's wonderful playing and yeah, I would highly recommend it. We're going to put the link up on the um, episode description. There's like a bunch of different pieces up on here for you to learn about. That sounds cool. And like it could maybe be a cool resource if you were preparing one of the pieces that they talk about as well. Yeah, there's just a lot of variety of pieces that are up on this website for um, podcasts. And they do Symphony, Mendelssohn Symphony Number no. 3, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, Vivaldi Four Seasons, WC's La Mer. It's like all the stuff that we prepare and um, play a lot and have to learn about. And it's a really great resource. I would highly recommend it. 
That sounds awesome. And do not forget that if you have something cool to shout out, you can always record it on your voice memo and send it over. But we know that you guys just want to get to Professor Martin Schuring, so we'll let you have at it. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable readmaking supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's doubleornothingreads.com. Janet Engel loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Engel Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's D-I-S-H, all caps, for 10% off your first order at JanetEngel.com. So today's guest needs no introduction. We are so excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Martin Schring, Professor of Oboe at Arizona State University. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Our first standard question is kind of multifaceted, but we like to have our guests tell us um, about um, kind of an introduction to yourself, your training and educational journey, and how you got to where you are today. How much time do we have for this? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been teaching the last 25 years or so at Arizona State University. Um, I started by studying at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, where I studied with John DeLancey. Um, my first job after school was in the Hong Kong Philharmonic, where I stayed for about four and a half years, I think. Then I spent one year as principal oboe in what is now called the Florida, oh gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. It was then called the Florida Gulf Coast Symphony. Um, it's in Tampa, St. Pete. Um, then for about 15 years, I was the English horn player in the Phoenix Symphony Orchestra before I joined the ASU faculty. There was a couple years of overlap there as well. I would love to hear about your studies with John DeLancey. He is such a huge figure in the oboe world, and I would love to hear uh, more about his teaching style and what you learned from him. You know, I think about that a lot because I've been teaching now for many years, and the more that I teach, the more I admire what he was able to achieve. Um, 
which is over and over and over again, he would take a high school kid who was talented um, and quite focused on a music career, but still a high school kid or a fresh college freshman, he would take, every year he would take those people and four years later they would come out as musicians, able to function as professionals. Um, I think that's a remarkable achievement and I keep sort of thinking about how he did this over and over again, besides just selecting the right students to start with, um, where of course he had a lot of good students to choose from. Um, in the event, while I was there studying, I found it difficult to understand because he never would dumb down anything. Everything was Philadelphia Orchestra serious. And it was either good enough for that or it just wasn't good. Um, it took me a while to understand that because it was completely outside my own frame of reference of standards, you know. Um, so in the four years that I studied with him, I think he said the word good to me three times. <laughs> um, and I at first I found this really troubling, but then I realized when he said good, he meant good. Mm -hmm. So that became a real memorable sort of achievement. Um, <clears throat> the garden variety everyday compliment in a lesson was, well, you know, my boy, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> if you if you heard that, you were already satisfied. Um, he taught in very large concepts and very broad outlines. This is how phrasing works. This is the these are the ingredients of a beautiful sound. Um, this is how much sort of sweat equity you need to put into what you're doing. Um, and he would leave you to kind of figure out all of the details. Um, you know, he has, over the years, accumulated a fairly ferocious reputation, which is just, I think, not true. Because he was never unkind, he was never mean, he, was ne he never raised his voice, he never said anything rude, he never did anything sort of even remotely unkind or cruel. Um, he just would say in plain English words exactly what he thought of what you had just played. And sometimes that was hard to hear because it was never sugar-coated. It was just, <laughs> it was just, this is not good. Um, so the, the other thing, of course, about this is that we tend to construct our own teaching in a way that reflects the way that we were ourselves taught. I think that sentence written down would sound really bad or look really bad, but I think it makes sense. Um, so <clears throat> the two things about his teaching that I think do not work for the sort of teaching that I do, meaning not elite conservatory where I can stick to the same curriculum with every student, um, he would never tell us how to do anything. Right? It was never like take the reed out of your mouth, scrape the corners of the tip, um, stand up straight, breathe like this. Never. Mm. Not one piece of specific information about how to actually do something. 
Um, of course, we all eventually figured out how to do something, but I found at the time, I felt at the time that it would have been so helpful just to get some tips in that direction. So in my own teaching, I, I tell students how to do stuff step by step by step. Um, and the other thing is just my own personal thing. It was that the atmosphere in the lessons, indeed the entire relationship was completely professional. It was never, how was your weekend? Is your mom okay? None of that. Um, and I don't think it meant that he didn't care, but it meant that he thought those things were not important to the work that we needed to get done. And I suppose he's right, but I found it a bit off-putting at the time, and so I try not to do that with my students. This all kind of reminds me of your book, um, Art and Method, where you kind of go through in detail, you know, a lot of the um, – fundamental and, and more nuanced approaches to the oboe. Could you talk to us about the process of writing that book and your goals in doing so? Sure. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of an accident. I mean, not really. But so when I first started teaching at ASU, it was in the early 90s. Um, it was the first time, honestly, that I had ever spent any kind of time in a university. I never studied at one, I never attended one, I never taught at one. So here I was in a university, and I didn't know how anything worked. <laughs> um, and my boss kept saying, how's recruitment doing? And recruitment to me meant like the basketball coach going to the kid's <laughs> house and sitting on the couch with grandma's cookies, you know? <laughs> but I knew I had to attract attention somehow. Um, which, as an orchestral musician, you're kind of taught not to do that, but I had to figure something out. Um, so I made this creaky little web page that still exists in its creaky state. <laughs> um, and I apologize to anybody who thinks it's old. It is. Because um, the web is supposed to be somehow dynamic, and mine is not. Anyway, I made this creaky little web page with a few articles. Um, about just oboe topics. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I could attract a little more attention if I publish some of these in the Double Read Journal. So that happened. And then people started asking me at Double Read conferences, like, when's a book coming out? Well, I don't know. There's no book. Um, but then I realized I had a little more to say about some topics, and I had other topics that I hadn't addressed. And so for the longest time, this project was just an untidy pile of sketches on my computer. And so it got to an uncomfortable size where it was too big to be articles and too small to be a book and not the right size to be anything. So then I decided, okay, I got to do something. And I looked this, I looked online. Who do I want as a publisher? That's honest to God what I thought. Um, I thought, you know, everybody's heard of Oxford University Press. Let's try them. So I looked online. I found out who the music editor was for that, for Oxford University Press, and I sent her an email. And she said, this sounds interesting. Send me a writing sample. So I did, and she said, this looks good. Send me more. Um, so eventually I put together a formal proposal, which... As you probably know, it means you send them about half the book and describe what the other half's going to look like. 
And that was eventually rewarded with a contract. And that was the scary part, because once I signed that, it meant I actually had to do it. <laughs> right? There's no more, oh, let's do this one day. This thing had a deadline. Um, so it was, it was a very long process, probably more than 10 years from start to finish, and probably only the last six months to a year or so was spent doing focused work with the specific idea of getting a book done. Um, you mentioned your website, which I'm looking at right now, and it has an Oboe Info link. Um, you go to the Oboe Info page, and it has a huge amount of information about a wide variety of topics, just like you mentioned. And the one that um, caught my eye more than any other ones was Notes for Beginning Read Makers. <laughs> Yeah. And I would love to ask you about it because just I'm just going to read the first line. You are not making reads. You are learning to make reads. There's a big difference. It's not all your fault. Yep. Can, can you tell us a little bit why you wanted to include a tab for beginning read makers and reassure them that it's not all their fault? <laughs> yeah. yeah, because there's there's frustration there. And I think, you know, I think it's just sold wrong because if you tell the student 14 years old whatever you tell the student hey we're going to learn to make reads i think they hear they hear make reads and they don't hear learn and they don't com they don't really comprehend that it's going to take a few years before this turns into any kind of productive activity and yet they have to do it because the only way to get better at it really is to do it more and it's that's a hard sell sometimes because young kids making reads for the first time, they're slow. It takes forever to even just destroy something. Um, so they're slow. They're, I'm bugging them all the time to make more reads, which to them sounds like a completely frustrating waste of time. Um, and to make, you know, five reads a week, ten reads a week, they they just can't really even deal with that. So I thought it was important <laughs> to give them some encouragement because, <laughs> you know, be, because it's the same as learning to play your instrument. You don't expect in your second lesson to play the Mozart Oval Quartet, and you shouldn't expect in your second read lesson to actually have a read. Mm. I wish that pedagogically... I wish that there were some kind of preparatory system for teaching read making, you know, that, that gives the students fluency with the various elements of doing it without actually doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I've thought about that to the point where I, I've just told you, I wish there was something. <laughs> but <laughs> it'd be great if we did have that. What is the best way that you found in your experience in teaching read making to get um, young students started and to a successful place um, quickly enough so that they can, they keep doing it? <laughs> well, there's something I have not tried, but I'm intrigued by. Um, so this doesn't really answer your question yet. Um, I heard of an approach where the teacher would give the student a nearly finished read and then they would work together to turn it into something 
more completely finished. Um, that seems like, and then gradually as the process went on, they would work further and further backward so that tying the reed together was like the last thing to learn. Um, that seems like it has potential, so I'd be curious to try it sometime. But my honest answer to your question is I have not found something that checks all the boxes that you just said, right? Something that gets them motivated and successful quickly. I just give them a mandrel and a staple and a spool of string and off we go. <laughs> well, thank you for thank you for trying to answer the eternal question. <laughs> I'm curious about um we'll go on to talk a lot about your approach to playing and your performing career and whatnot, but you're so successful as a pedagogue and Galit and I are both, you know, relatively early on in our careers. I wonder if you have any um, tips or could maybe talk about your own journey in becoming a master pedagogue and how each of us who are on the journey of learning how to teach more effectively, you know, any tips you have for us. Sure. Thank you for saying those kind things. Um, well, <laughs> already when I was a kid, my sister would always call me Martin the Explainer. <laughs> um, so I have a long <laughs> history of just enjoying telling people how things work. Um, and I guess also a pretty good ability to look at something and figure out how it works, or if it doesn't work, what's wrong with it. Um, and I think I have pretty good verbal skills where I'm able to find not just sort of the word, but really the right word. Um, beyond that, though, teaching to me is at least 50% listening, not just listening to the oboe playing, but also just observing the student, because everybody's different, and so some students you'll tell them something and it you'll draw a complete blank while others will think it's the most brilliant thing they've ever heard. Um, so I'm constantly watching body language, facial expressions, um, words that come out of the mouth, just to see if what I'm doing is actually stand, actually stands a chance of being successful. Because as soon, you know, the sooner you can give up on a failed strategy, the the sooner you can move forward. Um, and having employed many, many failed strategies over the years, um, you know, I know now pretty much what I should avoid and what I should say and what I absolutely should not say. Um, so a lot of it is failure, I guess, <laughs> um, of, you know, you try something and it doesn't work and then I guess you should stop trying it. Um, but the idea of just paying attention to the student and individualizing the session is, is really important, I think. Staying on the subject of pedagogy for just one more question, um, I'd love to ask you about uh, your edition of the Barrett Etudes. Um, the Barrett uh, Oboe Method. Um, can you talk to us about why you um, put out this new edition and um, what you were hoping to offer the oboe community? This 
is you make it sound like I was so purposeful in, <laughs> in God, it's been my dream all my life to make a Barrett edition. Um, <laughs> this is another it's it's another sort of story. Um I got a phone call from a man named Marty Winkler. His dad was the win part of Bellwin. So Bellwin music. So Marty at that time was probably in his eighties. He was the owner of Calmus. Then he retired, sold Calmus. Then he was really unhappy with what the new owners were doing with it. So he asked if he could buy it back and they said, no, but we'll hire you as a consultant and you can do this, that and the other. So the first thing he wanted to do for God knows what reason was build up their double read catalog. And somehow he'd gotten my number. So we're chatting along and he said, I think the first thing I want to do is, is publish the Barrett Oboe method. And Calmus at the time, less so today, but at the time they were famous for just issuing facsimiles of things in the public domain, um, that were, you know, ancient editions when they were first printed and then when Calmus got hold of them, they were, you know, really old. Um, so I had a feeling that that's what he meant when he said the Barrett-Ovo method is just take the Boozy and Hawks, which is itself a facsimile, and and just reprint that. And I said, well, that's not going to work. This thing needs to be engraved anew because it's full of mistakes and the typography is antiquated. And I spent half my time explaining to students why the stems go backwards. And I... Thing, the thing just needs to be completely redone. And he said, well, who would do that? I sort of, like, you could raise your hand on the telephone. I did. Uh, I said, I'll do it. Um, and it just, I, you know, I, th I thought it was kind of a lark. I didn't think that he would actually follow through and that I would one day hold in my hands the actual finished, printed, published thing. But, yeah, it happened. And I spent, well, several months in front of the computer just putting that all down. Mm -hmm. And then a few years further on, some, I found some more mistakes. Some people mentioned that they would like to have other materials included, and so I expanded it a little bit, and they reprinted it, and that's what you can get now. Could you talk to us about how you ideally structure your practice sessions and if you have any particular warm-up or scale habit that you use consistently? Those of us who are friends with your students know of the famous uh, D major scale. So if you could talk to us about <laughs> your approach to practicing, that'd be great. Um, so ideally, I mean, this is not news. Everybody I would respond, I think, about the same, that ideally the practicing would include about one-third of warm-ups and scales, about a third of, of technical work, and about a third of musical work. Um, and as we all know, that that ideal kind of structure doesn't really exist, right? So we always have to modify it one way or another just to meet the needs of the day. Um, I do have a, a routine that I think prepares me, at least, and it's described pretty carefully in, in my book, 
But the D major scale, <laughs> the D major scale, or it could be any slow scale, the idea is to warm up your body, warm up your ear and your mind, um, and try to do something that seems to be pretty easy on the surface of it, right? Technically, D major is the easiest key on the oboe, really. You just lift fingers and it comes out. Um, there's In the exercise, there are no expressive demands. There's no vibrato. There's no demand that it be super quiet. In fact, I prefer for it to be full. So, in a way, it's the easiest thing that you could ask someone to do on the oboe. And yet... To have it come out really beautifully is is rare. So I use it as an illustration of how difficult it can be to get exactly what you want to come out of the instrument. And then once the student gets better at that, then we change up to different keys and try to make the same thing. It was I didn't invent this. I studied one summer. I can't take credit for inventing the D major scale. Um, <laughs> but I studied one summer at a music thing. I forget the name of it now, but the oboe teacher, I was an undergraduate. The oboe teacher was a man named Stephen Edelstein, um, who I hope some of your listeners will, rec will recognize the name. Um, and that was our first lesson. He said, I want you to play a slow D major scale. I mean, I was a snotty Curtis kid. I could, you know... I can sure as heck play a slow D major scale. And it turned out I couldn't. And he sat right next to me, and he'd sort of slap me on the arm every time I did something wrong, which was about every note. <laughs> and it it was really quite an eye-opener. I spent the rest of the afternoon practicing that, and I heard around the dorm building other oboe players practicing D major scales. Um until we eventually figured out just how to control the instrument. That's what it's about. Have you ever struggled with uh, performance anxiety, or probably your students have, and what is your best advice for um, those of us who also struggle with things like performance anxiety? So for me personally, um, well, first of all, I mean, if, if a word of comfort to those who suffer from it, it will get better. It just won't go away. Because um, I think if you are able to perform on a regular basis and you never feel amped up for that event, then I think that's not great. Um, for me, the two things that make me nervous are if I am afraid that somehow physically I can't do it, like I just don't feel well, um, or if I don't feel prepared. You know, that feeling of standing on stage thinking, I really should have practiced this more. I, I, that just doesn't <laughs> make me feel good. Uh -huh. um, some people, I mean, the word anxiety is in there. So for many people, anxiety does not include um, any sort of reason. It's just a thing that's bad that happens. Um and then that's that's more complicated. But I feel like for students, I tell them, you know, your performing life is never going to be more difficult than it is right now. Because they're playing music 
I'm just thinking of like a student degree recital. You know, they're playing music that's really hard for them, or it should be if the repertoire's been chosen correctly. So they're playing really hard music. They're playing that music for the first time. They're doing it without um, a background, a history of successful recital performance to look back on. Often they're doing it while performing some other change in their embouchure or hand position or whatever, reed-making style. Um, so no professional would ever do this, right? You play a bunch of new music that you haven't learned before that's really hard while you're making reeds a different way for the first time that you've performed in a year. I mean, that's crazy. Who would do that? But yet we demand that the students do it, and they have to do it. Um, so it's no wonder that they get a bit anxious. So my, you know, the only good solution I've come up with, besides making sure that they're really prepared and have a, a few nice reads to play on, is just to give them plenty of opportunities to play, even if it's just 5, 10, 15 minutes somewhere, standing up in front of people, you know, so that it feels more normal. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to us about some of your favorite memories of past performances? Sure. Hmm. I remember. So in the summer, I play, I'll talk about the Grand Teton Music Festival, where I've played every summer for like 35 years, um, which is a, it's an amazing place, first of all, just geographically. It, you know, it's stunningly beautiful to look at. Yellowstone National Park, which is a ridiculously great place, is just an hour or two away. The orchestra is amazing. Um, so it, it's a wonderful and inspiring place to be, even without having a special concert. Um, I remember years ago, though, we, we gave a performance of the Berlioz Requiem, which is a wonderful piece full of beautiful chamber music moments but also full of really amazingly powerful moments. So there, the hall there is not very large. It's like eight or 900 seats. So you can see the audience clearly. They can see you. And when the orchestra is playing full blast, it's really loud, which is cool, right? Because a lot of times you go to a symphony orchestra concert and there's, there's no real visceral experience of hearing that sound, there's just the sound. So here we were, we had a full orchestra on stage, Mormon Tabernacle Choir behind. So I don't know, that's like 300 people right there. And then there are four offstage brass bands. But we had nowhere to put those really, except in the aisles on either side of the audience. So the entire place is full of musicians. And when that got all cranked up, the orchestra, the choir, the brass bands, everything all together, I mean, it was some kind of noise. And you could look out into the audience and see from people's facial expressions that this is not what they had signed up for. They thought they were going to a symphony concert, and, and this was like some kind of sound party. It was just amazing. <laughs> Another concert there that I remember that just kind of worked for me, uh, we did a program, more recently, a program of Wagner scenes concluding with the 
Brynhilde's immolation scene from Götter Dämmerung uh, with a wonderful Wagner singer, Christine Brewer. And she had one of those voices that when she turns around to face the orchestra to during the rehearsal, you can't hear the orchestra anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it just takes over the entire space. Um, and that music has always meant something to me anyway, because my dad loved it. And so I grew up hearing it and it was, it's just sort of a cultural thing that speaks to me. Um, so I just remember that concert as being exceptionally, wonderfully exciting and beautiful. And, and I just couldn't move at the end for a while. It was great. In a related question, um, what are some of your favorite pieces to play? And this can be solo, chamber, orchestra, anything. Yeah, you know, I read through your questions yesterday trying to think if I needed to prepare. And that one I don't need to prepare. I can answer this very easily. <laughs> um, I, I mean, the two pieces of music that I've performed that I think I would enjoy the most and don't tell anybody, and would probably play for free. Um, I think the Bach St. Matthew Passion mm -hmm. is one, um, especially if you can score the first part in the first orchestra. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely exhausting because you play three instruments, and some of the pieces you, some of the movements you you really play for like five minutes without breathing. It feels like, but it is just such a magnificent piece. That that was a great experience. Um, Mozart Grand Partita. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing piece, and and it's you know it unlike some of Mozart's works, it's long enough to constitute a real journey. Um, for for the player, I love that. On a completely different scale, um, I had the opportunity once to play a ring cycle, which I would actually gladly do again. I'm not sure how many people would say that. The whole that, thing right in a whole, row? The whole thing right in a row, yeah. Wow. wow. And how did you feel afterwards? Fine and sort of exhilarated um, because, as I told you, I love that music. Um, but as you know, the first act of Goethe Demerung alone is two hours. So... We, you know, we did that, and then we did it again the following week, and then we went back to the regular symphony schedule, and we would finish a regular symphony concert, and I was like, okay, when's the next concert start? <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> it's the musical equivalent to ultramarathoning. <laughs> <laughs> so your studio at ASU is quite large and has, I would imagine, a lot of different types of students with different goals and that type of thing. Uh, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how you run your studio class, read class, undergraduate teaching versus graduate teaching, and that type of thing. Great. Um, so for studio class, we are fortunate to have two hours during the week, one hour on Monday, one hour on Friday. Um, so I've split up the the content of those classes. The Monday class is always um, a lecture or a presentation or a just discussion on topics that range from 
adjusting your instrument. That one seems to, I need to seemingly repeat that frequently. Um, you know, adjusting your instruments, how to adjust the various reed-making machines that we have in the studio so that I'm not the only one who knows how to make the gouge a little thinner. Um, so the Monday class is spent on oboe topics like that, but things that I would much rather show to all of the students one time rather than to each student individually. Um, and then the Friday class is a playing class where... Each student plays something. We all, I try to get the students to generate most of the commentary because I think it makes you just think about your own playing better if you listen attentively. Um, I think further that it's really important for any musician to learn how to speak without causing offense and to learn how to hear without taking offense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talking to your peers about their playing can be a really personal thing if it's not carefully done. So I think the experience of listening and speaking about the playing, I think, is really, is really helpful. And I also require that each comment includes something positive, not, not to be a cheerleader or anything, but I think it changes the way you listen. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking not just what can I tell the student that they're not doing well, but also what can I tell them that's really working and that they need to be recognized for. Um, So that's the studio classes. The read classes, um, I set aside, it's not really a read class, right, because you don't get a grade and there is no attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more like an office hour where people can come by for read help. Um, I maintain a sign-up sheet for that just because if there's more than three students in the room squawking on reads, I start to get a little edgy. <laughs> and, and in addition to that, which my goal there is to try and get the read-making instruction out of the oboe lesson as much as possible so that the oboe lesson can be about music. Um, it's not altogether successful, but it's somewhat successful. And then for the freshmen and sophomores, um, the graduate assistants uh, teach a read-making session for those kids that meets once a week. And they also teach um, a technique and scale lesson to each freshman and sophomore for 45 minutes or so a week. And that uh, that's been a great, wonderful help because, you know, the younger students need a lot of help with this is how you practice this material. These are the best fingerings to use. Here's your metronome marking that you need to observe and so forth. Just really nuts and bolts stuff. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, what are What is your approach to read making and what advice can you give us <laughs> nice, nice. Asking gentle for test. a friend. <laughs> um, you know, I think I tell this story in my book. I I read an article, or actually an interview, when I was a student. With it was an interview with Ray Still, who was then the principal oboist of the Chicago Symphony. Um, and in this interview, Ray said that it takes about. 30 years to learn how to make reads. 
So I had two reactions to that. Because <laughs> one is what I'm, because I was an arrogant youngster, I thought, well, maybe it took you 30 years, but, <laughs> but I'm going to get a handle on this quicker. Um, my other reaction was, geez, I hope that's not true. Uh, and I kind of forgot about that until many years later when I, I remembered and I thought, hmm, okay, have I learned how to make reads? I guess. And... Next question, of course, was what have I learned? So I, I don't want to give specific read-making tips because those don't work if they're seen in isolation. Mm -hmm. right, you know, I often have students come back from a summer camp or something where they say, Miss So-and-so said that your reads have to do this and that. And I, you know, and I always have to tell them, well, that works with her reads and her setup but it doesn't work with your reads and your setup if you apply it in isolation. Um, so I think there's, there's such a thing as too much information. Neatness counts. That would be my first thing. Hmm. Neatness counts. We've all seen reads that look pretty awful but sound pretty good. And it's it's tempting to think that that's okay. But... I think it's not. I think making something that is symmetrical, that has good structure, that ha shows good knife technique, um, which requires a sharp knife at all times, which requires um, a really nuanced attention to knife pressure on the cane. I think that's where students go wrong the most. Um, so if you can make something that looks like the picture, then already your yield is going to go way up. And that's kind of my initial um, goal with students who come in as sort of semi-inexperienced read makers is just get the thing to look like the picture. Don't worry about art, you know, just make a neat product. And if you can, if you can generate that on a consistent basis, then your yield is going to go way up. So all everything that kind of wraps into that, right? Sharp knife, don't mess up. And and I guess the other thing is as soon as you can apply a really consistent method to what you're doing. You know, so you have the same equipment, the same gouge, the same shape, the same cane supplier, the same this that and everything. Um and if you feel like you need to change something, then change one thing at a time and give it some time. What advice would you have for a young oboist who aspires to have a career like yours? <laughs> so the first thing would be don't do what I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, I, mean, I, I, I did nothing right in terms of preparing professionally to be a university teacher. As I told you, I got the, the first time I was ever in a university is when I got the job. I had a bachelor's degree at the time. I mean, it's, it's just, don't do what I did. Um, but on a sort of larger professional question of, I think, I think you need to persevere. I think there's a lot to be said for just putting of course, you have to be good at what you do, but let's just take that for granted because there's lots of people who are good at what they do and they still aren't completely successful. 
So you have to persevere. There's a lot to be said for just putting one foot in front of the other, um, which is sometimes not the easiest thing to do because there's a, occasionally some resistance in front of you and putting the next foot in front is sometimes a struggle. I think, secondly, do not be afraid of challenges. Um, most of the things that I have done in my life that have really helped propel my career forward have been things that initially scared me to death. Um, one example was when I first hosted the IDRS conference in 1998, I guess. I mean, the consequences of failure there were unthinkable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't think about them very much. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that was something that I think paid off in the end. And I, I could bore you with more examples. Um, another thing I think that's really, really important is get along with people. Your coworkers, your bosses, your subordinates, get along with folks. Because really, you know, it's just human nature. People do nice things for people they like. And if you're able to just, and I don't mean be a pushover, I just mean be somebody that people can depend on and that they like being around. So I would say those three things, be collegial, take advantage of opportunity challenges, and be persistent. If you wouldn't mind telling us what exciting fun projects you have coming up on the horizon, and to close out where our listeners can find you on the Internet. Well, finding me on the Internet is not hard. I think you can just visit our friend Mr. Google and type in, <laughs> type in ASU Oboe or something like that, and you will find my creaky old website. Um, so please don't write to me and tell me it's creaky. I know this. Um, I have a couple cool things coming up, not right away, but um, in January. Um, I'm playing for the first time uh, the Jennifer Higdon Concerto, which I think is a beautiful piece, but I've never played it. And so I'm looking forward to learning that. I'm playing it with our our uh, university wind orchestra. So I'm really looking forward to that because I've heard a couple of beautiful recordings. And, for, and I'm playing, which I've done many times before, but I always love revisiting it, the Bach Concerto for Oboe de Mori. Um, we have an annual Bach Festival here, and so they asked me if I would come and do that. And since ASU has a really nice Oboe de Mori that doesn't have keys falling off it and stuff like that, <laughs> um, that'll be fun. Martin, thank you so much for this interview. I feel rejuvenated and ready to go make reads. <laughs> you, you guys are great. This is, this is fun. Thank you so much. You bet. As always, you can find us on all of our social media at Double Read Dish, and you can email us at DoubleReadDish at gmail.com, and check us out on YouTube. We're all caught up on YouTube. And do not forget to check back in for episode 21 when we will have the amazing, the renowned Christopher Millard. <laughs>